Hi, my name is Sarah Tran. And this is Megha Jan. And we are Technology. So what tea are you drinking today, Sarah? Today I have an iced matcha latte. What about you? I am actually drinking chai. And quick PSA for everyone listening, it is not chai tea. If you say chai tea, you're just saying tea twice. So just say chai. That's such a fun fact. Speaking of drinking or actually spilling tea, Sarah, what's the first word that comes into your mind when you hear VC? The word that comes to mind when I think of VC is mysterious. You know, unlike public equity, where you can see a lot of the trades and acquisitions happen in real time, and a lot of that information is more readily available for the public, I feel like for something like venture capital, or I guess the entire private equity industry as a whole, it's a lot more of something that happens behind closed doors. You know, you're either at the table, you know, making those decisions and understanding everything that's going on, or you're not. Now, I don't think that's a bad thing, actually, because in the world of VC, so much of it is fueled by startups. And what is the number one strength of startups is their ability to have stealth and speed, which is something that operates under these conditions of mystery. That's definitely a really true sentiment. You're either at the table or you're, you know, outside of the doors trying to like peek in and see what's going on. I feel like for startups who are trying to get Series A funding, they're pretty unaware of what's going on. You know that 60-person group chat that the Wired article about the eye, mouth-eye movement mentions? They basically managed to raise over $200,000 by dangling a fake private beta. People had no idea what this was about, but they started investing. Yeah, and I remember reading an article that they also raised like an insane amount of VC. Did they actually raise VC or what, what was that? Yeah, so it basically said that they raised a fake round for Eye Mouth Eye. Reggie James, one of the people behind this movement, tweeted about this hypothetical startup receiving a $4 million investment on a $40 million pre-money valuation. And it created this whole sense of FOMO uh, or fear of missing out, whereby people were investing in something they had no idea about. And he said the next 36 hours were just shot. Everyone was putting their money into this because some of the biggest names in um, VC and tech seem to have changed their Twitter bios and their Instagram bios to eye mouth eye. I can just imagine like scrolling through my Twitter feed and every other person's handles is eye mouth eye. I would be, I would be really confused and shocked about that. And I think that explains a lot. You know, there were uh, more than 30,000 30, people who entered into their email address database. So that just shows how quickly this spread. Yeah. And about that, I have a question for you, Sarah. If you were a member of the VC community or, you know, a, a private independent investor, do you think you would end up putting your money into this venture, which you knew nothing about, but you believed in the people working on it? Oh, wow. That's a really great question because, you know, that, that makes me think like, let's say someone like Reid Hoffman, you know, one of the founders of LinkedIn just suddenly announced one day I'm going to create my, a new product. 
I would be really tempted to follow on that train of what exactly he's building because, you know, he has a great track record. But I think personally, I would never put my money, you know, I wouldn't put my money where my mouth is on that regard just because I need a, I'm the type of person who's like, I think that VC should be focused on building products and startups that have some sort of a legitimate, you know, purpose and that are very clear in terms of solving an actual problem. Um, and so as much as I, I love that question and I would love to be able to back a random company, something like this, I probably wouldn't. What about you, though? I think I would have to agree with you. Once again, I don't have that sort of money, though. I feel like having that sort of capital and having made investments in the past that were successful, my answer might actually change. And I just think it's so interesting that three emojis were completely able to change the game and raise over $200,000 in less than two days. That blows my mind. Right, like that reminds me so much of Clubhouse, um, which generated over 100 million in valuation or VC by A16Z. One of the biggest reasons why was because it created FOMO, so like fear of missing out, because they they brought on so many celebrities and just all of these really, um, really famous people in the VC world, so like top partners and representatives. And it felt like this entire app or ecosystem that was only for insiders and like everyone was trying to get into it, which is, which is just really interesting because it kind of plays on that idea of, mis- of VC being mysterious. Even looking at the hype culture within VC, like the eye mouth eye movement that was happening a while ago, kind of showcased how everyone's an insider and there's like so much clout around it, but no one really knows what's going on. Like no one's in on it. I think that they really thrive and capitalize off of FOMO. And uh, I think something really interesting that has been a recent development is that BVP or Bessemer Venture Partners. So BVP or Bessemer Venture Partners actually released a really detailed memo, which explained what they have been looking for in their past investments. On this page, you know, there's Shopify, there's Pinterest, there's Twilio, Twitch, Wix, Yelp, LinkedIn. These are really big name companies. Like these are the top of their industry right now. Um, But yeah, so it literally just walks you through what it was like for BVPs or Bessemer Venture Partners first interaction with Shopify. And like it shows in these little boxes, you know, everything that like their own annotations and it walks you through what it's like to be like in the perspective of a VC. Wow, that's really crazy. And that's kind of insight that you'd never normally get. I've right. never seen anything like this. This is so, it strays so far away from the brand of VCs usually. They're mm-hmm. like so mysterious and they don't want to let you know what works and what doesn't. And you almost feel like there's no formula to it. At least being on the other side of it, I've always felt like it's just luck, you know, luck. And then it depends on the industry you're in and a few other things related to that timing. And, uh, yeah, I mean, that was kind of what I was thinking, but there's a lot of consideration that goes into it. Yeah, and I love it because we can even go back. So since this is the pitch from Shopify, it even says like what software it was originally built on. So like if you want insight into the, how they were built, it's like it was founded in 2007 um, by two Ruby on Rails core developers. So like it tells you the programming language they used. That's just super cool to me. And look, you can even see the insight of what questions were going through the VC's mind. Because it's like, 
Is this first-time founder capable of recruiting top talent and growing a team that scales with the company? Oh, interesting. Based on Shopify's reputation in Ottawa as a local internet startup success story and based upon Toby's reputation among the developer community, the company has been able to recruit some of the best development and design talent in Ottawa at 60 to 70% of the cost of similar talent in Silicon Valley or New York. Damn. So I think, I mean, connections are everything once again in the world of startups. Yeah, like, let's, I'm going to scroll down and see. Oh, wow, I love this because in the pitch, it not only gives an overview of Shopify and where they're at, but it also says like their market opportunities and like their strategy as a whole. It's funny that you bring all of this up because I remember watching this video by Sam Altman, which was about ideation and like creating this really good startup. And he was talking about how startups have like unfair advantages or at least successful startups have like unfair advantages. So you can even have, you can either have a really good founder, like they, they're an expert in their field, which in the case of Shopify seems to be true with Toby, or you could have like a growing market that's growing by at least like 20% a year. Um, Sometimes you have multiple of these, by the way. You can also have like a product that's 10 times better than your competition. No one's ever seen it before. Super unique. That's becoming less likely over the years, I will admit. I feel like you need expertise if you want to create a product that's 10 times better than your competition uh, nowadays. And then there's acquisition, which is what you were talking about. Um, you know, having, okay, yeah, having special purpose acquisitions and or creating a monopoly, which is getting harder to do. You can use like network effects and marketplaces to make that happen, but the government inevitably seeing the latest trends is probably going to butt in. So yeah, using those like unfair advantages that Sam Altman of Y Combinator was talking about, I think it's interesting to see how VCs also obviously take that into consideration during Series A funding. Not Like it's not just like a, you know, starting point thing. It just continues on. Yeah, that's something really similar to, I don't know if you've seen it, but the TED Talk by Bill Gross, and he basically talks about like the biggest reasons that startups ultimately succeed. And so those five factors are, you know, you need, you know, you need an idea. That's kind of the given. But then sometimes we think that startups only succeed because of the idea and how brilliant it is. But in reality, I think, you know, what Bill Gross finds and a lot of other research says is that it's more about execution. And so he tries to quantify these. So he says like, you know, timing, um, your team, your business model are probably more important. And then the thing that actually matters the least according to his findings is funding, which I think is kind of surprising because sometimes we think that, you know, you need to raise all this VC in order to actually be successful. But he argues that it's not really the case. But I guess that kind of brings up the question that I wanted to ask you. It's like, why would a company or a firm like BVP even release these memos? Yeah, I think the only reason that, or the only incentive they would have for releasing these memos is because they want to invest in top talent as well, right? Especially during this pandemic, there are so many startup founders right now who have brilliant ideas, but they need backing. And I think BVP and a lot of other VCs are starting to realize at this time that, hey, maybe it's time to demystify the process because This is how we're going to get people who truly have the passion and drive to make these things happen um, and, you know, expand our our market share. I love that word of demystify you use because it reminds me of this article I was reading about how 
in general, the VC world is trying to shift more towards this concept of democratizing. So for example, with Instagram, it allowed you to democratize what it was like to be a photographer, right? To be a professional uh, in that field. And the same thing with other places, like, you know, I guess just as a whole, the internet has allowed you to democratize information. And now anybody can really access anything that's out there. And I think there's a similar trend going on that's being discussed a lot where VC firms are trying to, they're trying to invest in these companies and startups that allow users and consumers to have more democratic means. So like, you know, with Wix, for example, now anybody can build their own website, they can sell a product. Same thing with Shopify, right? Now, now anyone is their own business because they have these platforms to do it. But yeah, I guess on that note, that makes me wonder, just a, this is kind of just a subjective question, but from your experience working with startups and just kind of your general knowledge about VCs and what you've seen, do you think that there's a certain type of startup that is better to invest in? Like if you were in the position of a VC, what factors would you look for essentially? So I'll preface this by saying that I am not in that position and I definitely do not have the industry knowledge to uh, make that sort of decision or say which startup I would be investing in today. Um, but I will say this, that it really depends on timing. I mean, timing is everything. And YC keeps saying that, um, you know, a lot of VCs like BVP really stress that timing is everything. We can see that in these memos that have been released. Um, and I think that the industries that are thriving change based off of circumstances and they change based off of technology that exists. You know, there were people who were trying to come up with Uber Eats when iPhones didn't exist in the 90s and they were trying to do it through telephones and it just didn't work. So I think you need the technological backing. Your timing needs to be right. You need to have the right team and the right energy to make something like that happen. And I think those are like the main thing VCs focus on as well, because eventually those are the money makers. Um, and we touched upon this in like our podcasting episode as well. But when you're driven by the why of what you do rather than what you're doing, when you're selling like a mission as a company and you can prove that you're not going to be stuck in one industry for too long, or even if you are, it's a growing industry, it's a growing market. That's when I think you can be really successful. Yeah, I love that point you made because it reminds me with what happened with Amazon. So Amazon, of course, is a really big company that a lot of people use for multiple examples. But, you know, Amazon had pretty humble beginnings. It started off as Jeff Bezos's attempt to essentially create the first or not just the first, but the most premier online book industry. So book commerce industry. Um, but as since it's translated over to retail space, it's translated into grocery stores with Whole Foods and and one of their most profitable industries is actually with Amazon Web Services, which is something that I'm sure Jeff Bezos never saw when he first began Amazon. So kind of going back to your point of startups not having to be backed by VCs, I think a perfect example of that is Red Octane. Uh, I was speaking to one of the co-founders of Red Octane a few months ago, um, Kai Huang. And for those of you who don't know, Red Octane is actually the publisher of Guitar Hero which was the most, I believe, played video game in the 2010s. So basically they were not VC backed. And I found that really shocking because obviously they did really, really well in the 2010s. I mean, Red Octane 
is not operating anymore. But while they were operating, they had a really good run. I mean, by 2009, Guitar Hero was a $2 billion franchise. And it's funny because Kai Huang started this with his brother in 1999. And when they first started the company, it was actually like a video game rental service. So kind of like what Netflix was doing, but uh, in the video game industry. And it's just funny how they pivoted and then how they were not VC backed and yet they ended up being such a big phenomenon in the video game industry. And hopefully we can have Kai over in one of our coming episodes. But I think you make a really valid point about the fact that even during like the 2008 financial crisis, Red Octane was able to make it through without having that start that a lot of startups think they need to have. And in fact, when you look at the numbers, it kind of makes sense because when it comes to VCs, only like 43% of US public companies are VC backed. Um, and actually the fact of the matter is that VCs raise four times less money than private equity firms. And if you look at numbers that uh, a Stanford study released in 2015, they only invested in 0.19% of new businesses. So that myth of you have to be VC backed, you know, to be a legit startup, is very much not true. And I think maybe that's the whole reason that BVP is releasing these memos because they're trying to change that. But yeah, that brings up a really great point. And I love, it was so interesting when you brought up how during the 2008 recession, there were still startups and businesses that were able to not only grow, but to actually thrive. And so to bring it in more of a contemporary lens and the status quo, I was wondering, what do you think it takes to thrive as a startup? in the middle of an economy that isn't doing so well? I think startups right now have a huge advantage over current large companies or high growth startups because they have this privilege to not have to pivot in the middle of everything. They're starting during so much uncertainty. And while that is a tough start, it's also great for a startup because startups literally thrive in uncertainty. Like that is kind of the word I associate with startups, uncertainty and change. So I think that is pretty great. I would have to say, unfortunately, there are still a lot of old factors such as funding and whether you have expertise in the area or not that apply to startups. But I think a lot of it is also about being in the right place at the right time. Like you mentioned Zoom um, and Zoom was in the right place at the right time because they were developing this technology, you know, a couple years before the COVID-19 pandemic happened. They didn't have any insider knowledge as to this pandemic. They didn't know it was going to be a thing. Um, and yet they were able to create a video conferencing, you know, platform that is now used by millions of people worldwide. So I think a lot of it is just having a vision, believing in what you're doing, and creating technology that is really adaptable and can be used by a wide variety of people and can easily pivot to suit the needs of uh, whoever it is that they that ends up using it. No, that makes a lot of sense. And that brings up two points that I was actually thinking about. And the first is that I, I like what you said with how, you know, startups really thrive in times of uncertainty. And I think that the reason behind that is because startups can really cut corners. You know, they don't have to 
go through this huge bureaucratic system and say, you know, where one middle manager proposes an idea and then it has to be verified and vetted by like 20 other individuals within the organization before it happens and it executes. But with startups, you know, you're able to just ideate something and then the next day literally execute on it. And you, there's no one really there to tell you otherwise, right? Because it's your own initiative. Yeah, and the second thing that I really liked is that sometimes when we think of startups, we think that they need to address problems of today. But I found that with a lot of startups, you know, it's also about how well can they address the problems of tomorrow before we even see them occurring. And I wanted to bring up this one startup that I know my friend is working on. Um, I'm not going to disclose the name yet just because they're still kind of in early stage, but essentially it's about vacation and, you know, how can you centralize or create this platform that ties together, you know, buying a ticket for a plane, getting transportation, uh, booking a hotel, uh, getting and finding fun restaurants to attend and, and events. Um, and that really is interesting that they started to work on that right now during the pandemic because they're expecting that after the pandemic, you know, there's going to be all of these opportunities and everyone's going to want to go into those fields and to actually, you know, live their best life once social distancing is over. I think that makes so much sense. And I love the way you phrase that. That is always something I say, like startups today have to be solving the problems of tomorrow uh, to be successful. Like there are so many issues that we're going to potentially run into with tech. And uh, of course, there's going to be an increase in demand in certain industries after the pandemic is over. So it's just really cool to see that there's people already addressing those issues, uh, especially in such a unique way. I really, really love that. And I'm excited to use that app myself once we can start traveling again. But yeah, in conclusion, I think this push for transparency in VC definitely represents a new era for startups in the world of VC. Obviously, 2020 was a year of great uncertainty. And as we, you know, go into the fourth quarter of it, uh, things don't seem to be changing too much startups are still facing the sort of uncertainty that they were at the beginning. Um, the vaccine isn't out yet. Testing is being delayed in a lot of cases. And people are even unsure of what 2021 will look like. So in this environment, I think it's really important to have some sort of guidance. And if, you know, BVP and other VCs can provide that, I think it would be an awesome change, you know, for the better. But on that note, I think that leaves us with a great place to end this episode. And in hopefully upcoming episodes, we're planning on bringing a couple of VCs in their field and professionals so that we can hear and ask them on their unique take. Thank you so much for tuning in to this week's episode and make sure to stay tuned for next week's Technology Tuesday. Mm-hmm.